Welcome back to Parashat Beha'alot Decha. My name is Arya ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm the author of the commentary. In Genesis chapter 1, what we need to do here is I'm going to show you my audience right now. I'm going to show you where there are actually where there's actually a hidden code. I say hidden because I don't think God actually hid it to the sense they didn't want us to find it until we had a computer to find it. That's Michael Drosnan's premise that that God actually and I'm, I'm trying not to give away the book. I mean, I don't want to ruin it for you if you don't have the book. But in a nutshell, more or less how I interpreted the book, I could be wrong. Basically, God put these hidden codes in here, these hidden messages, in the biblical text. And the only way we could pull them out or extract them was with the computer algorithm. Thus, in the end, the computer is, is a sort of God. And, uh, and, and Moses did not have any clue as to what was being put into the book or to the text when he penned the words of the Torah. However, contrary to Michael Drosnan, I believe that Moshe was privy to what I'm about to show you, and therefore what I'm about to show you can be utilized without the assistance of a computer. You can actually pull out any standard Chumash, any Tanakh, any Hebrew scroll that has the letters put together at least uh, and, they, and they had not been manipulated. In other words, um, any standard, uh, you know, Leningrad Leningrad Codex, any any ninth century text and forward, any standard Hebrew Masoretic text, and you'll be able to see what I'm about to show you. Okay, so let's look at Genesis first. In Genesis chapter one, verses one through five, the Hebrew word Torah, which is the the letters um, Tav, Vav, Resh, Hey. The Hebrew word Torah can be found if we count every 50th letter. And what you have to do is you have to actually start with the first Tav that you come into. Okay, now, what I've got in front of me now is a Hebrew uh, Bible. And I look at Genesis chapter 1, and the first verse says, Bereshit bara Elohim et hashemayn ve'et ha'aretz. Now, in the first verse, in the word Bereshit, there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 letters reading from right to left. There's Bet, Resh, Aleph, Shin, Yud, Tav. That Tav there is where I want you to start counting one. Okay, start count one. Go one with Tav. And then the very next letter, number two, would be the Bet in Bara, and then the Resh in the Bara, and the Aleph. So um, one is Tav is number one, and then Bet is two, Resh is three. Aleph is four, and so on. Keep counting there. Go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And when you get to 50, the 50th letter is in verse 2. The verse 2 says, V'ha'aretz ha'yita tohu v'avohu v'choshek al panei tahom v'ruach Elohim menachefat al panei hamayim. And in the word tahom, it's tav, hey, vav, final name. And the vav there is the 50th letter. If I started with the uh, with the uh, tav, in the uh, in the word Bereshit in chapter in verse one, I'm sorry. So follow along with me that way. Tav is first letter one, and then two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, blah, 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 and then thirty-eight, and then and then forty-eight, forty-nine, fifty. The vav is fifty, and then you keep counting, and then with the maim is number one again. Start all over. The maim in tahom. And then the vav in Vuruach, the vav is two, the resh is three, the, the next vav is four, the chet is five, and you keep going. And then you get all the way down to verse four, and it says, Vayira Elohim et ha'or kitov. And God saw, the, uh, uh, God saw that it was 
God God saw the light and he and he said it was good, and um, uh, uh, the word vayare, um, and he saw is vav yom. I'm sorry, vav yud resh aleph, and the resh there is the fiftieth letter. If I started with the mame up there, is number one. Okay, you guys following me so far? Let me just count to make sure. All right. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 6, 7, 8, 9, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 5, 6, 7, 8, 49, 50. Okay, I, I, I instructed you wrong, I apologize. The tab, the, the count starts with number 1 with the bet after the tab, okay? Go 1, 2, 3 after the tab. So the letter Tav shows up, and then go one, two, three, and then f- the fiftieth letter will be the Vav, and then start counting one with the Mame after the Vav, and the fiftieth letter will be the Resh, and then start counting one with the Olive uh, that you see there, and the fiftieth letter will be the He in verse five, where it says Vayikra um, Elohim, and the word Elohim is Aleph Lamed He Yom Final Mame, and the He there is the fiftieth letter. So if you look at those four letters, we have Tav, Vav, Resh, He, which spells the word Torah. So, um, going back to my commentary, let me just recap what we just saw. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, the Hebrew word Torah can be found if we count every 50th letter. Now, we must understand and remember that the Hebrew reads right to left, so our Hebrew word Torah, consisting of the four letters Tav, Vav, Resh, and He, would look, or, or in English, maybe we could say the equivalence of T-V-R-H, would look like this in our text, beginning with the first Tav that we find. We'd have, we would have Tav, and then we'd have 49 spaces, and then the 50th space, or the 50th letter, is the Vav, and then we have 49 spaces, and then the 50th letter is Resh, and then we have 49 spaces, and then the 50th letter is Hey. So, every 50th letter with the 49 spaces in between. Now, in Exodus, which is the second branch in our menorah, in Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, the exact same phenomenon occurs. Oh yes, I'm not making this up. You people who are listening to my podcast who have the ability to read Hebrew, go back and check this out and see if I'm lying. I'm not lying. It's right there. Beginning with the first Tav that we find, the pattern is this. Tav, 49 spaces. Vav, 49 spaces, Resh, 49 spaces, Hey. Okay? Torah, Torah. Now, our Shamash book of Leviticus, which is the center lamp, we're, we're going to find something unique, but also we're going to find something special. Instead of the Hebrew word Torah at every 50th letter, we instead find in the very first verse the tetragrammaton name of yud Hey vav Hey, in essence, Yahweh. And this is uh, found not at every 50th letter, but the name of God is found at every 8th letter, beginning with the first Yud that we find. This is the pattern. Look at my commentary, or just go along and listen. Or go along and follow along in your, in your uh, Hebrew text. We have a Yud, 
which is represented in the in the English by the letter Y. Remember, we've got Y H V H is Yud Hey Vav Hey. We have a Y, then we have seven spaces, then we have a Hey, then we have seven spaces, then we have a Vav, then we have seven spaces, then we have a Hey, Yud Hey Vav Hey. That's our Shamash. That's our central lamp. To the right of the central lamp, the book of Exodus, and then to the right of that, the book of Genesis. And what did we find there? We found the word Torah and the word Torah. Now we've just described our Shamash. Let's keep going. Now, again, this, the name of God is indeed the proper central shaft of our hidden menorah. Don't you think so? After all, God is the preeminent one. He deserves to be center. But let's move on to Numbers and find something interesting. In Numbers chapter 1, in verses 1 through 3, we find the familiar Hebrew word Torah, because that's what we're expecting. Our menorah is built along a symmetrical pattern. So numbers situated to the left of the center lamp, if we're looking at our menorah, we would expect it to have the word Torah, as should be expected at 50 letter intervals. And guess what? They're there. But this time, since the pattern is symmetrical, as should be expected, guess what? The letter order is reversed. That's right, they're backwards. Reading from left to right this time, it reads Torah. Tav, 49 spaces. Vav, 49 spaces. Resh, 49 spaces. Hey, which, if you know anything about Hebrew, that's backwards. T-V-R-H, or T, Tav, Vav, Resh, Hey. It's backwards according to Hebrew. In other words, it's a mirror pattern of the book of Exodus. It's the reverse. So it's symmetrical. It lines up. It balances out on each side. But it's like a mirror pattern. It's, been, it's like, you know, it's the reverse of itself, which is really, really cool. Finally, we come to the book of Deuteronomy. Now, at this point in time, you're probably going, okay, Ariel, I know what you're going to say. You're going to tell me that at 49 spaces, every 50th letter, the word Torah is there, and, um, and it's backwards. Well... You're close. In the book of Deuteronomy, in the last branch of Menorah, all right, this is the fifth book of Moshe. We're going to find something very special. The Hebrew word Torah is surely found. Don't get me wrong. It is there in the first chapter. But this time, a few minor changes take place. All right. Instead of starting with the first chapter in verse 1, like we did in, in uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Instead of starting with the first chapter in verse 1, we start this time with chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, not verse 1. We start with the fifth verse in the fifth book. Starting with the first he of verse 8, we count not every 50th letter. Keep in mind we're going in reverse. We're not going to find the tav up front. We're going to find the he first. We don't count every 50th letter this time. Instead, we count every 49th letter to reveal the word Torah. Yeah, the word Torah is there. But there are 48 spaces between each letter. So it's at every 49th letter that we find the word Torah, not at every 50th. Isn't that odd? The pattern is going to look like this, reading from left to right, since we're trying to stay in our symmetrical pattern. We have Tav, 48 spaces. Vav, 48 spaces, resh, 48 spaces, hey, or if we were to say it in English, we have T, V, R, H. 
but there's 48 spaces between the letters instead of 49 like we saw in Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers. Well, now the questions are just spinning around in your head. Why the 49th letter instead of the 50th letter? Alright, at this point in time, I can't be dogmatic. I don't know exactly why we, we have a letter difference between the two. However, being somewhat of a Messianic Jewish mystic myself at times, okay, and borrowing some of the reasons from the ancient mystics themselves, that's right, I have access to the Zohar, I've read parts of the Tanya, uh, these are the mystical writings that the Kabbalists read. I'm not, sh I'm not saying I fully endorse those works, but uh, they're, not completely, um, they're not complete garbage either. I like to explain it this way, all right? as far as the difference between the 49 spaces and the 48 spaces. This is my own messianic spin on it. Okay. Firstly, the book of Deuteronomy is the fifth book, so it is natural that the word Torah, the five books of Moshe, should begin actually, or uh, should begin or actually end in the fifth verse. Okay. Secondly, in other words, I, I I think I think it's proper that we fifth book starting the fifth verse. Secondly, the Hebrew title of the book is Devarim. Okay, Devarim is the Hebrew title for Deuteronomy. Now, the word Devarim literally means words. Okay. It's a plural for word. Okay, Some of you listening to my podcast know a little bit of Hebrew. The Hebrew word for word is davar. Word. D-A-V-A-R is how we usually spell it. Davar. Word. And it's a masculine term. And in Hebrew, terms that are masculine, when they are pluralized, when they find their plural, they usually end with the suffix I-M. In English, we say im. It's actually the letter Yud and the final letter Mem. So Davar becomes Dvarim. And so this noun Davar, it's, uh, again, it's, its gender is masculine. Its English title Deuteronomy comes from two words, meaning two, or second, and law, or Torah. Thus, Deutero plus Namas in the Greek is uh, Deuteronomy, or or duo namas, two law, or second law. Now, why is it called the second law? Well, Judaism has long recognized the book of Devarim as a, a kind of separate book, a sort of second book of the Torah, which, which actually stands alone on it, on, by itself. It is part of the five, but it enjoys a unique status of being um, almost like its own law, its own book. It's a kind of smaller duplicate of the Torah all by itself. Okay, the Talmud actually calls this book quote the repetition or review of the Torah. This book, uh, Devarim, because many of the laws that Moshe spells out in the book of Devarim have been already laid out in the previous four, and he simply repeats them in second person fashion, as opposed to in the first set he he gave them in first person. Um, also he actually adds a few new ones that were not listed in the first four. Moreover, the sages also agree that the word, you know, when I'm, now when I say the word here, I mean the capital W-O-R-D. The word is the mystical person of the Messiah. This is actually a rabbinic idea. It's not entirely Christian. Keep in mind, Yohanan, John chapter 1, verse 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if we were to take that Greek passage, then um, the, the, the Logos, um, the Logos, I believe it is, the Logos, which is the Word, becomes Davar in Hebrew, the Word. If we were to take, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and translate that into Hebrew, it would come out something like this. Bereshit hayah hadavar v'hadavar hayah im ve'elohim ve'elohim hayah hadavar. The word, davar. In Aramaic, it is memra, the proper noun of the, the name of the person who is identified as the Mashiach, the word of God, who is in fact equated with God, is memra. So, read John chapter 1, verse 1, as well as John 1, 14. Again, this is a Hebrew idea. It came along the scene long before the Christian church ever snatched it up. In Jewish mysticism, the Messiah is known as Hamimra, which is another title that means the word. It's Aramaic. According to the Renewed Covenant, according to the Apostolic Scriptures, we know this to be true. Yeshua is what? The fullness of the Father in bodily form. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word made flesh. We also know that He is the Word that resided with the Father before he came to earth. He is the eternal, existent, self, uh, um, self-powerful self word. He's, he, he, is, he is one with God, and yet he came to earth and took on the form of a man and became Yeshua. In, in, in that sense, the word became flesh. That's exactly what John said in 114. You know, Um I'm sorry, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, he tabernacled with us. A whole other teaching, hold of the Midrash. But the word is God, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and, and it's very confusing if we, if we try and figure it out logically. But we can't figure it out logically. We just have to accept it. So, using spiritual logic, all right? Let's put our, put our spiritual think tank uh, to use, not not try and figure it out with a Greek mind. We don't understand it, but we affirm it. We can't we can't comprehend it, but we 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 do affirm it. Okay, we 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 can't understand. If the first word is Hashem, in the beginning was the word. The first word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Let's say the first word mentioned in that passage is God. If the first word is Hashem, God, then when it says in verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word there in verse 14 of John chapter 1 is Yeshua. The writer, John, made a leap in heavenly logic from the first mention of the word, word, which is God, to the second usage of of the word word, which is Yeshua. He makes a leap in, in, in heavenly algebraic uh, uh, equation uh, to cause us to understand that Yeshua is one with God in a way that we cannot fully understand. So, if the first, and I'm using the word first there in air quotes because I don't want anyone to confuse what I'm trying to say. And I want you to be confused that I'm trying to teach that there is a greater God and a lesser God. That is heresy. The greater and lesser Yahweh? Give me a break. It's all over the internet these days. You can do a, 
uh, Google search for it, and it's heresy to be sure. There is no greater and lesser Yahweh. Okay, there's only one Yahweh, and he's God. Yeshua is God. He's fully God. He's not lesser God. Okay? However, the exercise is just, um, the language is being utilized so we can kind of understand perhaps why we've got 48 spaces between one and 49 spaces between the other. So, please don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. The first word is Hashem. If that's the case, then the second, the second word, is Yeshua. Okay? That is, the word which came after the first in the hierarchy of the Godhead. God is, in fact, the head of Messiah. I didn't make that up. That comes straight from the Torah. Paul said that. God is the head of the Messiah. And yet, if Yeshua is God, then how can God be his head? It's, it's a mystery. I don't understand it. But I believe it. You know what I mean? Don't try and explain it. It'll make your head spin. Just, just, just affirm it. So, God is the first word. Yeshua is the second word in the hierarchy of the term Godhead. Hence, Yeshua is the words. He is the Devarim. He is the, he is the Deutero plus Namas. He is the second word. He is the, he's the, he's the lesser in the sense that he comes after God, okay? He, 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 he owes his allegiance to God. He, he, is, he is subservient to God the Father. He is the Son. He is not Yeshua the Father. It's not God the Son and Yeshua the Father. I don't, I don't see that in the Torah. It's not Yeshua the, the Father and God the Son. It's God the Father and Yeshua the Son. That makes sense. The Father is over the Son. So, Hashem is the 50 letters of the Torah, and since Yeshua is the Deuteronomos, the second law, the second word, Yeshua is the unique 49th letters of our five-branch hid menorah. Does that midrash kind of fit? I know it's a stretch. Some of you listening are going, gosh, Ariel, that was a stretch. I'm sorry it was such a stretch. I don't know exactly why. We have four, one at every uh, 50th letter and the other at every 49th letter. If you've got a better explanation, write in to me and let me know. I'd love to hear what, what you think about that, okay? So using our acquired knowledge, we can construct our menorah like this. Look at the bottom of page 7. Reading from right to left in typical Hebrew fashion. I'm going to read off the English letters, okay? Because you already know the Hebrew by now. We've got T V R H space T V R H space H V H Y, which is Yerevave space H R V T space H R V T. Now, now looking at it this way, you can see it is perfectly symmetrical. Yahweh is in the middle, or Yerevave Yahweh however you want to pronounce his name, Yahweh or Yahweh, or Yahweh. Uh, but we've got YHVH in the middle, and then to the right and the left, we have Torah, Torah, and then to the right and left of that, we have Torah, Torah again. Again, the if you notice, because of the symmetry, uh, look below that, we have capital letter A as our Shemash, which is symbolized by the yod heh And to the left and right of that, we have two arrows facing inwards, pointing in. And then to the left and right of that, we have two more arrows pointing in. And then finally, again, to the left and right, we have two more arrows, two final arrows. So the symmetry is causing us to see that the um, surrounding branches or the surrounding lamps are, again, facing inward, which is exactly where we started at the beginning of this entire commentary. This equidistant letter formula surely did not come to pass 
by accident. I don't think it did. Neither was Moshe clever enough to construct it. I don't think he put it together himself. Although I think after he wrote the scroll down, he probably looked at it, since it was probably easier to see, because back then the, uh, the original scrolls didn't have any spaces between the letters. They were all smashed together, just one letter right after the other, without the, the um, sentence breaks like we see them in our modern texts. Uh, so Moses probably was privy to it. Uh, he didn't say anything that we have recorded, but it was probably there. But I don't think he was clever enough to construct it himself, because it takes a clever usage of the Hebrew words as well to, to, to make this come to be. No, I believe that this is the divine design of the Creator himself. And I've given you this small look into Jewish Sud as a treat, kind of a sort of break from my usual format of Messianic commentary to the written text. You know, I'm usually like plugging along, telling us to be holy and telling us to, that we need to follow Torah or giving us some lesson uh, along the like. And I thought I'd take a break and just uh, kind of um, go off in a different direction and and more, kind of a little more entertaining for you, okay? I trust that you have enjoyed the break in the routine. Uh, let's keep going. Um, we're on page 8 of the commentary, and we're just about done. This last section is called The Rest of the Story, okay? Because there are other things in the parasha to talk about. The parasha actually goes on to reflect both the graciousness and divine punishment of our great God. The incident involving those who missed the first Pesach, the first Passover, for instance, shows that our God is sensitive to our needs as well as our shortcomings. Later on in the book of Numbers, we find two men or three men, I can't remember, um, who missed the first Pesach because they were defiled by a corpse. And the God, in fact, made a concession and said, you know what, if you miss the first one, 30 days later, keep it again. You can keep a second one. That's kind of neat, neat, and you know, God of a second chance. He could have just as well made those who missed the regular Passover wait an entire year until, uh, you know, an entire year had passed to participate. Yet we find Hashem making a way of provision for those who earnestly desired to keep His holy feasts, yet were ceremonially not permitted to do so. That's grace, people, that's grace. Saying, you know what, you missed it the first time, you can pick it up 30 days later. Also, the story of Moshe, Aharon, and Miriam, as well as the quail, demonstrates the balance of grace and punishment. Okay, it's an interesting story. Lack of faith and constant jealousy over God's choice of leadership. We had Aharon and Miriam complaining that Moshe was leading and that he was, well, just that. He was leading. Nothing more, nothing less. They were just complaining, you know, hey, what, who made you leader? <laughs> and you know what? God does not tolerate power struggles, especially when God is the one who anoints the people in charge. You, 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 you complain against the leader, and guess what? You're complaining against God. He doesn't tolerate that. He simply would not allow his children to be divided over issues of pride, jealousy, and lack of contentment. And you know what? He rightfully punished Miriam for her wrong treatment of her younger brother Moshe. She was wrong. Presumably, Aharon's punishment was less severe because of his position as high priest. At least I think so. Either way, the Torah does not mention it directly here. Later on, we're going to find out that, that Aharon does, in fact, um, he gets excused from entering the Promised Land, and perhaps that's part of the punishment. Moreover, the punishment of the quail, uh, where God gives them the quail and they didn't, you know, they complained about the manna. We don't like the manna, we want real food. 
And God says, fine, you want real food? I'll give it to you. I give you food till it's coming out your noses. And while the food was still in their teeth, he sends the plague. And so the punishment of the quails should demonstrate, even for us today, that God's hand of providence, whether it be manna or some other heavenly substance, because after all, any food that we get is a gift from God. God is our provider. That's why you meant the phrase heavenly substance. Anything that we get should be enough for us to rejoice about. I rejoice. That's why we thank God for the food that we have. We thank God and we bless Him when we are full. The Torah says uh, that, we, that after we have eaten and are full and are satisfied, that we should bless the Lord. And this is why within Judaism today, the birakat, I'm sorry, the, um, uh, uh, yeah, the, the birakat, is it the blessing after the food? Birakat hadminim, the, no, that's not, that's the blessing of the heresies. The, um, the, 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 um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank. Hang on, let me just look at the prayer book here. What is the name of the blessing after food? I'm, I'm, some of you who are listening to my commentary are telling me. You're shouting it. You're, you're, you're speaking to your computer. You're saying, Ariel, it's called the... The blessing after... The grace after meals. Birkat <laughs> Hamazon. Sorry. The Birkat Hamazon. The blessing after meals is recited within Judaism. Uh, it's pretty standard. Why? Because God says, after you've eaten and you're full then, and satisfied, then bless me. And so anything that God gives us should be blessed, should be rejoiced over. But the, comp- the people complained. God sent them food. He sustained them in the wilderness. Three million plus people, two million plus people. I'm not sure exactly how many people were there. Some say two, some say three. Either way, it was a miracle to feed that many people, plus their, their, their livestock, right? And they have the gall to complain and convetch. Give me a break. It's a great lesson there, but I'm not going to elaborate on it here in my commentary. I, I just want to say this. Why do we constantly want that which we do not have? God gave them food, and they were sustained, and they wanted that which they didn't have. And you know what? We're no different today. We shouldn't be so hard on the people of Israel back then. Every one of us have gone through times in our life where we, we whine and we gripe and we complain about what we don't have. And we fail to recognize what's right in front of us. And you know what? Sometimes we complain about the things we used to have, and we start we start kvetching about all the sacrifices that we've had to make now that we're following God. You know, before I followed God, I, this was this, and that was that, and everything was better. But now that I'm following God, I've always got a lack. I, I've always got to trust God for this and trust God for that. That's exactly what Israel did. They said, we want to go back to Egypt because we have food there. And you know what the proverbial complaint is? Is that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Well, I'll tell you what. Was the grass really greener in Egypt? In Exodus 11, verse 5? That's, that's, where, the, that's where I'm lifting uh, this information. Was it really greener in Egypt? Was it really better? You know what? compared to what Hashem provides for us on a daily basis? I think not. Do you agree with me? You know, the grass is really not greener in Egypt. There's no offense to present-day Egypt. But what God gives to us is enough. His grace is sufficient for us. Let's rejoice in that, okay? Amen. Thanks for sticking it out. It was a fun commentary. Um... An unusual commentary this time. But the closing blessing is as follows. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam. 
אשר נתן לנו תורת אמת וחיי עולם נטע בתוכנו. ברוך אתה אדוני נותן התורה. אמן. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe. You've given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. And with that, have a wonderful Sabbath. I bid to you Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, The Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at hotmail.com that's y-e-s-h-u-a number 613 at hotmail.com or visit our website at graftedin.com that's graftedin.com <laughs>